How can we better equip ourselves to take on the new day, our goals, and the world? How do we stoke our inspiration? By dropping in, we'll hear from credible experts on ways to thrive in this environment. As persons trying to cope, as workers learning to pivot in our careers, and as those curious about life, wellness, family, healing, and humor, we'll learn by sharing stories. Like the watering hole, dropping in is a communal place. People who've had the courage to tell their stories offer the nuggets they've gathered along the way. They bring us the spark to confront what matters. Everybody everywhere is on a hero's journey of trying to survive and do well. Stories from these diverse sources pave the way, even if the paths are new or unknown. Drop in with us to discover the roots and where we go from here. And now, here's our host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're in the season of speaking truth to power. So many valuable lessons as to how to do that arrive with our amazing guest, writer Gretchen Charrington, author of Poetic License and Memoir, published by She Writes Press this summer. Welcome, Gretchen, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Diane. This is probably the best book title ever, Poetic License. (laughs) Um, It is such a play on words. It refers to your Pulitzer Prize-winning father, Richard Eberhardt, your perfect-seeming family, um, but his uh, unfortunate and um, saddening and disheartening uh, lack of boundaries as when you were 17, he molests you in your own bedroom while there's a party going on downstairs. I can't think of anything more uh, contrasting in the most hideous way. Um, You are a storyteller, Gretchen, and a phenomenal one. Your love of story uh, shows here so clearly in your book. I want to let everyone know that Gretchen Eberhardt Charrington grew up in a household that, thanks to her Pulitzer Prize-winning father, the poet Richard Eberhardt, was populated by many of the most revered poets and writers of the 20th century, from Robert Frost to James Dickey. She spent her adult life advising top executives in changing their companies and themselves. Her essays have been published in Crack the Spine, Bloodroot Literary Magazine, and Yankee Magazine, among other journals and newspapers. And her essay, Maine Roustabout, was nominated for a 2012 Pushcart Prize. Charrington is a leader in her community, and she's served on over 20 boards. Passionate about her family and friends, she most enjoys spending time with them at home or in wild places around the world. Poetic License is her first memoir, and I understand there's another in the works, so we'll hear more (laughs) from you, Gretchen. This is just such a pleasure to have you. I I couldn't help but come... I, I came away from this memoir with the feeling that you were, in the Dickinsonian sense, uh, ultimately the hero of your own life. First, for oh, finding your voice and such a beautiful voice, but also in the actual circumstances. That night when this occurred, you actually did, once you grasped out of sleep what was going on, you fought your father off by kicking him out off of the Uh bed and and out of your room. 
I can't even imagine how you went back to sleep that evening. Um, I, I can't even imagine what you were absorbing. It seemed to me as though the whole sanctity of your home changed in that flash, in that moment. Did it feel that way to you? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, the problem for me at that very moment was that I really had no words to describe in my own head or, you know, in my own being what had just happened. It, it didn't make sense on any sort of cognitive level. I, even though I'd had some interactions with my dad that had been troublesome to me leading up to that, I had, I, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe now in 2020, but back in 1967, I didn't know anyone else in my whole world to whom this had happened. I, I, didn't, I didn't even know it existed in the world, whatever it was. And so at that very moment, I shut down. I, I think I had, I, I don't know, I mean, I think the therapists sort of call it out-of-body experience or whatever. I just kind of, um, the, the whole incident just kind of got buried as I trained my eyes outside on these very, these beautiful, thick pine tree, um, what do you call them, you know, the bottom part of the pine tree, that mm -hmm, I could see trucks. through because of the party lights from below that were sort of shining on them. And I trained my eye on the trunks of those trees, and I somehow just willed myself to go on. I mean, I didn't really know what to do. I, I, I instinctively knew there was no one I could tell this to. I instinctively knew that I would ruin my family if I did. I don't know how we know those things, but we know those things. Um, and, and I knew them that night. It was, there was no question that in my mind, now this could look as hubris now, but in my mind, my, my family would be destroyed if I even could find the words to say anything. So, um, so yeah, that was a, that was a cataclysmic moment in my life that, that sort of shaped the whole rest of it for years to come. Absolutely. And I think that it's not hubris at all. I think that that's a very correct sense of protecting one's family, that if you were to speak up about this, especially in 1967, that it would completely blow apart all the family dynamics as they existed. And given the isolation of those times, uh, I strongly suspect that Unbeknownst to you, you did know other people. That's that's the uncovering, right, yeah, of the well, Me Too moment. Exactly. Um, and it must be yeah. a revelation now that you've started speaking out to find how many women have suffered sexual abuse in their own home. It's been so oh, rife in, yep. in a generation of entitlement, and now you're communicating about it. Well, it feels like once we drew the yarn out from this bull, there's just been no putting it back. Has it formed a new community True. for you? And uh, how is it to be part of something very, very um, full of gratitude and very so much solidarity, not just with women, mm -hmm. but boys that were molested in the priesthood? Um, you know, mm -hmm. this is this is a new consciousness, and you're very much a part of it. How does it feel now to be a part of this community? Well, it feels in a strange way both special and 
bad. Um, I, I think my first experience of that sort of dichotomy came in 2017 when I first told my story in public in our I, I live mostly in New Hampshire, New Hampshire and Maine. And in New Hampshire, there was a, a women's, um, International Women's Day. And I was asked to read something at that event. And when I did, first of all, I suddenly realized the world didn't collapse around me. But second, that I was just one of millions of women and girls around the world to whom this had been done by fathers, brothers, boyfriends, husbands, um, uh, bosses, you know, you name it. It was a great feeling of, and it was just as hashtag me too was coming out. So, so, you know, it was a great feeling of kind of solidarity and damn straight, I'm going to tell my story because so many people happen to. And in that telling, I heard from many people, for instance, in my own community where I grew up in Hanover, New Hampshire, to whom this had happened. And, of course, I didn't know anything about that growing up. We didn't talk about it. We didn't tell anybody. But um, So it's a funny feeling of, of both sadness that this happens to people and um, solidarity with womanhood and, and as you said, boyhood, um, and, and some men, of course, too, although predominantly it's women and girls. And I'm... Uh, you know, so I feel I feel strengthened by that solidarity, and I also feel much more committed to um, taking this forward as an issue to work on in the coming months and years of my life. If there's a legacy to the book, I hope it will be in the future work of that. I hope so, too. I, I commend you for it. It is a loss. It's a loss of innocence. It's a loss of something that should have been protective that makes that is gone and that makes you vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I, I even wondered in the book, um, Percy, he's this ominous mm-hmm. person. He's around your house in Maine doing handiwork. And yet, mm-hmm. and, 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 and you're disturbed by his presence. It's, it's quite offensive. He's often drunk and coarse with you. He's, he pushes and shoves you. I wonder if from the sort of beginning, especially when you look at it retrospectively now, did you feel a lack of protection, a kind of, you know, going forward, like, almost all along, that nobody really had your back. Is that too strong a kind of interpretation? I, I felt it. Well, it's not, yeah, I don't think it's too strong. I, I, on some level, I knew my mom had my back, but as I described quite thoroughly in the book, she had a terrible seizure disorder for 40 years of her life, and I had to take care of her a lot of the time. So, I became vigilant very young. You know, I had to protect her. I had to protect myself. And at the moment when I really got that Percy, for instance, was going to be allowed to stay in our home, you know, not necessarily inside our home, but helping at the house because my father was going to continue to have his bourbon with him in the evening, I was six years old, and I got it again instinctively that, that was not going to change. And so I think I was six years old when I really felt for the first time my father doesn't have my back. Um, right. My mom was a little bit, a little bit more uh, hard to, 
to um, sort of describe because she was so incredibly wonderful in so many ways. I love her to this day. I miss her to this day. She was just an amazingly creative, spontaneous, full of energy, tiny little woman. Um, Everybody adored her. And at the same time, this disease, which was very real and had a big impact on me, was hardly ever talked about. So it wasn't as if, um, you know, she sat me down and said, Gretchen, I know this is really hard, and here are some suggestions about what to do, or here's a little card that you can hold in your pocket to know who to call or, or whatever. There was nothing like that, no helpful supports like that. So I was left on my own, you know, really from the age of six to eight. When Eight was when I first um, was in the middle of the street in Boylston Street in downtown Boston, and her hand slipped out of mine, and I had to make it across the street with cars and figure out what to do with my mother, who was then dead weight um, inside a seizure or during her seizure. Um, So I think from a very young age, I developed a skill for vigilance. I have um, had to kind of unlearn that as an adult, particularly in my second marriage with a, with a husband who has helped me do that, um, because, you know, too much vigilant is, is not necessarily great. It's good when there is a real fire. It's not good every day of the week. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, but anyway, so I, I grew up sort of being vigilant around my parents and both of them for different reasons. Yes. I mean, I, for one, love your mother. And, um, you know, by extension, you, you cannot read this book without realizing that she, I mean, what a wonderful spirit. And she spontaneously takes you to New York City um, with her mad money. And, you know, she's got lots of um, spunk and adventure. And, it, and if she gets kind of sidelined by the epilepsy, it doesn't really keep her down. But of course, when she's having it, when she's checking out, um, there's nothing else to do but be the adult in the situation which you were forced to become. Right. Um, I, right. I think yep. that, and, and I think that every one of us can really identify with the authority that a parent represents. And your, your mother was, of course, part of the generation that lived very euphemistically. We didn't talk about the shadow side of things. We talked about the bright right. side of things only. And yeah. um, your dad, and I think this play on words of living in the shadow of someone who's famous, there is a shadow side to it. There is very definitely mm-hmm. the sense of the young Gretchen getting all of this responsibility and yet many of her own needs unmet. Um, and, and this right. level, this level of fame, do you feel, you know, when you, you know, I, I, I've read, um, you know, the marvelous reviews about your book and one is um, by Miss Lindbergh, who also lived in the um, shadow of fame. Is it something that yeah. is much easier? Is it something that, you know, you, you just instinctively, get it when you're talking with somebody who is the daughter of a famous person versus a non-famous person? And how much did that external fame also collude in keeping you um, suppressed, repressed, um, trying, right. trying your best to, to keep it all mm-hmm. together? Oh, I think it colluded hugely. Um, yeah, no, thank you for mentioning that and, and noting that. I I think that it's funny as a daughter, or, and I'll just speak for myself, but as a daughter of a famous 
father. Um, and I certainly have talked to Reeve Lindbergh a lot about this and also to Sue Erickson Blolin, the daughter of, of Eric Erickson, um, from whom I learned a tremendous amount too. I think there is something that happens in, in the younger years where you just, you sort of get it that your father is the king of the family, so to speak, a little bit more than even the fathers, let's say, of childhood friends of mine, and that your role in the family is to support that in some way. You know, it can be, it can be, um, whether it's, in my case, entertaining his friends by playing the piano or reciting French or, you know, turning my cartwheels on the lawn or, um, or whether it's um, to be, you know, to stay away, they don't want you there, or whatever it might be, um, I think you get that kind of viscerally. And that, that framework sort of colludes with one's ability to really be who one is, you know. And I think, um, I think both my brother and I suffered from that in different ways. Um, and m- the way I suffered from it was feeling like I... I didn't really understand what was true and what wasn't true. Mm. There were all these fantastic stories told. There were all these epic moments in my father's history. There were these, you know, volumes of people in our houses that took up a lot of space and airtime. And I didn't really understand what was real and what wasn't real. And that is really the existential crisis that I was going through in my 40s when I decided to start writing and um, try to figure out what was true. Um, so it took me a long time to get there. And unfortunately, you know, I, I probably, I mean, in some ways, you know, sometimes I feel like I lost about 20 years. But on the other hand, we all do what we can with what we have and at the pace that we can do it with. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for in my 40s, even though it was a real crisis I was going through, I'm grateful that I had the fortitude to kind of decide to launch into this project. That was concurring with the breakup of your of your first marriage. And I would argue, yes. I would argue that, that there's a certain... Okay. There's a certain waiting period, there's a certain gestating period where you're gathering force, where you're gathering information, right? Something becomes solidified, coalesced within you. And that takes a long time, particularly when you've got these kinds of more or less insurmountable um, obstacles in your way. The absolute presence of a demigod in your family and the overall belief in the in the structure of your family Gretchen you have made it your business and I mean this in a literal sense to find out what's true and um, it's very interesting to me as a an executive consultant that in your you know in your career you went into what essentially I would say is corporate problem seeking, identifying what's really going on here, um, and that uh-huh. you utilized this dichotomy to, to great effect and certainly to our benefit in Poetic License. We're going to take a short oh, break. Right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. We're going to take a short break right now, but when we come back from the break, We're going to find out how Gretchen came back from standing at her neighbor's door in bare feet, 
during another family party with her brother, um, not being tended to, not out of lack of love, but out of not being in, in, in a kid-like place, and to growing from there into a voice that I think will become and sustainably one of the more important voices of our generation talking about this very important issue. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Gretchen Charrington. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion. Representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS communications company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're sitting with Gretchen Charrington, author of a new memoir called Poetic License. It's bound to become a classic, I believe, in terms of dismantling the structures and the impediments to speaking one's truth in the face of sexual molestation. And I think, Gretchen, you have come such a long way. And we really do feel, because by virtue of your storytelling, which is exquisite, that we do take a mile-long walk in your sandals. So thank you for this brave and beautiful book. Um, Thank you. You can find the book wherever books are sold, but also take a look at the author's website, GretchenCharrington.com. It's populated with exquisite and touching and illuminating family photos of this absolutely star-studded cast that surrounded you. But Gretchen, there's a price to pay. And I feel that, you know, it's almost an objectification. It's said over and over and over that without a wound, the poet would have nothing to write about. Clearly, your father was deeply flawed. There was a an internal wound that no one saw, foresaw. You say there were some iotas of inklings. Um, I think there were a couple of inappropriate kisses as your adolescence wore on. But what about this idea that the wound, it almost makes it seem, there's an inference that the wound and its repercussions are sacred because they're at the font of the creativity of this genius. And did did you feel that you had to take down this sacred cow among all the others? (laughs) Um, Well, I don't know that I felt like I had to take down the sacred cow, 
what I what I have felt is that I th- I think that creative people have gotten away with bad behavior for a long time, and not all, of course, but many. Um, it certainly seems, especially men, although I'm sure that's not solely true, and that I think in in my corporate work I. Where, where there are kind of rules and regulations and protocols for speech and how you say things and what you can say, what you can't say, um, et cetera, and, and with what you can do and not do, and not that corporations are clear of this problem either, by the way, obviously, but um, I, I kind of relearned, you know, what was okay behavior and what was okay language. And I also learned from some of the CEOs with whom I worked that were especially well-developed themselves or interested in their own human development that um, speaking truth to power was actually a good thing to do. I mean, if, if anything, they wanted me to do that. They wanted me to go out and collect information about them, about their companies, about what was really going on, and to assimilate that into some sort of story or, or, or shape that they could hear and then act on to improve themselves or their companies. And so it was interesting to be doing that all alongside trying to figure out, well, who the hell was my father and who the hell am I and how did my relationship with him affect me and how come I couldn't speak my truth to him, you know? That was part of what was going on in my 40s and 50s. Um, I think that the wound is romanticized in creative mm-hmm. people, you know? Absolutely. It's, uh, that's what I think, and and... I don't know whether in generations looking forward this will change or not, but certainly in the generation that I grew up in, and, and certainly for writers and poets and, and artists of all sorts going back beyond that in time, um, there was kind of a there was a, there was an allowance for that wound and its and its repercussions and impacts in favor of whatever they created. Um, to me, I guess, as a human being, I don't feel that what I create should be, how, how do I say this? I guess it's more important for me to be a decent human being and also create something than to be a great creator and not care about myself as a human being, um, if that makes sense. And I, I was disappointed that that my father wasn't the sort of man that he didn't take feedback well from his editors, from his friends, certainly from his family. Um, he, he was not somebody who worked at trying to become a better person. He, he worked very hard at his writing and his network and all of that, promoting his brand, et cetera, which before we knew that word, um, he was incredibly successful at. So there are lots of things I, in him I admire, but they're more the on the career side of his life than they are on the personal side of his life. Mm-hmm. It's almost an inversion, right? Utilizing the wound to give you permission to act badly. And, you know, I, I come out of also the visual arts world. You see it there as well, bratty mm-hmm. artists. Um, yes. And I, I think yes. that, you know, what you're talking about is the true identity of a person, your core values, and working on that and not 
putting the cart before the horse. Your accomplishments are not you as a person, your personhood and your integrity. Um, I I think you've got it right. And it probably took you a long time to reestablish this correct priority. Um, It's interesting to me uh, that you became a mirror, that your dad couldn't accept feedback. Honest feedback was an anathema. You became expert at delivering honest feedback, that people look to you mm-hmm. to be a mirror of, of the right. kind of corporate. I don't find any of that to be accidental. I find it to be completely all of a piece and, and, and instrumental in probably making you whole. Um, you were validated right, absolutely. by this incredible... Well, yeah, this is why you're such a great interviewer and reader because not a lot of people have kind of gotten that or, you know, not a lot of the sort of quick review kind of people have gotten that. And it's absolutely true. It's It was that 35 years that I spent in that world wasn't an accident, <laughs> even <laughs> though it seems to have been when I started out. It's like, oh, I'll just try this for a year, see if I like it kind of thing. Um, but in looking back, no, it wasn't an accident at all. It wasn't an accident that I was working with men primarily at the top of their fields. Um, that was no accident given who my dad was. Um, and it was no accident at all that I was, I was helped very much by them in speaking my own truth um, because they wanted it. They wanted to know what it was. It mm-hmm. gave me a seat at their table, you know, which is, which is something that women of my generation and, and really women of any generation are still looking for is a seat at the table. And, um, you know, in my dad's world, I, I was on the periphery. I wasn't really invited into the central workings. My brother was more invited into the central workings because he was sort of seen as the next generation writer and, and he was male and, um, and there was that sort of, you know, stereotypic identity, I guess, for my dad. Um, he did, he wouldn't have seen me as a writer. So I was sort of on the periphery and it was only through going back to those writers who I'd grown up around in the late nineties when I wanted to find out, okay, what did they know about my father? What did they really think of him when they, they were his friends? They, they were around the house all the time. They knew him way better than I did. And that was one of the most revelatory steps I took, really. It was, it was astonishing to me that not one of them was surprised by my story. And it was also astonishing to me how candid and honest they were with me about the flaws they saw in my dad no matter how much they loved him, which they mm-hmm. did. Yes, uh, on balance. As, yes, they were, they were yeah. in the same kind of um, balancing act themselves, um, you know, preserving. Yes, at that point, yeah. Yes, um, I, I found that to be an extraordinarily heartening part of the book, that um, your relationship with Donald Hall and with Allen Ginsberg, the, the Ginsberg relationship I thought was, you know, of course, you know, when we think about it, writers are trying to be straight shooters too, right? They're trying to get at it, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, So I loved that you got adult validation that, you know, they looked upon you um, not, you know, tenderly and with um, great compassion and respect for your experience that you endured Mm solitarily. Um, and were quite willing to put themselves out there and extend themselves to you so that you knew 
there was a grounding in the reality that you perceived. It it was real. Yeah. It was there. Um, I I wondered okay. if I wondered if it made you go back and and I mean you must have done a lot of reviewing and excavating, which <laughs> which was then completely embodied by these exquisite years that you spent in the archives of your father's letters that are now in a repository, I think at Dartmouth, right? The, the story yeah, unfolds yeah. as you're going through these intimate letters and details of your father's life. And you had some surprises mm-hmm. there, but also some validation there. Um, Absolutely. It, it must have been extraordinary to relive or live even for the first time. Was it was that process also part of your integration and your kind of catharsis? Yeah, I, it was very much on the early side of it, so I was still very fresh to... I, I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing when I was started. You know, it was like, I I just, again, and sort of intuitively felt like, okay, I need to figure out who my dad was in my life, and here are 55,000 letters to and from every writer of the 20th century, many of whom I knew, and wow, what a treasure trove, and what might I find there? I might learn about him. I might learn about him in the eyes of his friends. I mean, it it wasn't terribly well thought out. You know, it was just sort of, oh, they're there, and we live nearby, so it was kind of easy for me to go and, and look at them. But I became pretty engrossed in them, probably for a period of, I don't know, somewhere between five and seven years ish and it was you know a Monday here and a Monday there and a Monday there so it was on Monday but um, I I did reacquaint myself with the poets who I and, and other writers who I'd grown up around and I think it was in 1997 so this was sort of towards the end of my time it, this was fortuitous that at the end of my time in the archives, Dartmouth put on a major celebration for my dad in 1996, inviting, you know, invited a dozen or so of the best-known authors or poets, particularly at that time, and I think nine or ten of them were able to actually join us, and and Allen Ginsberg was one of them at my request, and seeing them there in person, recognizing that they had known me as a toddler, as a teenager, they'd seen me over the years. I thought, okay, now I need to get out of these dusty archives and into real-time conversations with the people who really knew my dad. That was a fortuitous timing of that event that took place because I, I you know, became real. I, I was able to see them again and, and meet them and say hello and give them hugs and stuff. And um, soon thereafter, I wrote letters to them and told them what I was working on and that I would love it if I could interview them or, you know, have a conversation with them. And they all said, sure, that's great. Um, and so I'm so, so indebted to to all of that set of poets um, who helped me understand my dad better and helped me kind of work out who he really was, um, which is both the light and the dark. I mean, I think, you know, if anything, I hope that Poetic License does some service to the fact that people are complex and there are lights and darks. And for some of us who've been affected by the dark side of others, um, 
it's hard to hold sometimes that there was also this light side. And, you know, as I've said, my dad was just unbelievably generous, gregarious, humane in so many ways, um, and loving and giving in so many ways. And then there was this other side. And trying to integrate all that, it was the poets who helped me kind of pull that together. As far as revising goes, um, yeah, I mean, the book was rewritten about 25 times <laughs> through mm-hmm. the 20 years that I wrote it and entirely rewritten once it was contracted with She Writes Press because I had finally found the voice that sounded true to me. And um, so I went through the process of completely rewriting the entire book in that last year of work with them before it came out. Um, well, we sh- and, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just one other thing is that, you know, and I, I'm sort of curious if you, you can relate to this, is that as we get older, our perspective changes. We look back on incidents that happened and we see them a little differently or we see them with more nuance or with more richness. And so as I age during this process from, say, 45 to 65-ish, um, you know, that's a chunk of one's life. And it's, a, it's an important chunk with marriage and children and, and career and all that stuff. And, you know, so I, as I changed, I needed to revise the book. The, the, the bones stayed the same, the key stories stayed the same, but the way in which I interpreted them, the takeaways, reflections on them, um, and also just how they were wedded together in structure changed tremendously over the course of that 20 years. I think it was and a gestation. Hope, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I hope um, <laughs> that we're moving towards consciousness. That we're we're you know um, we've taken the the frame of our life and we're no longer six inches away from it. We're standing back from yeah. it, and we're we're able to absorb. When you're talking about this duality, uh, not only do I think that that's profound, and it gave me a kind of uh, a jolt. I also think that those complex uh, interrelationships, the holding of two sides of one personality, is something. It's almost imaginable, unimaginably um, complex for a much younger person. It almost takes yeah, yeah. an older person that can synthesize it. And we shared, um, uh, you know, the author, the the um, editorial ship of Brooke Warner, who has one of the strongest yeah, yeah. Um, memoir writing editor skills, I think, that is on the planet. Yeah. So I, I think that, that, yes, it's amazing. And, I, and she gets it. Um, you have yeah. much to say um, and we're going to take another commercial break here infuriatingly okay. but we're going, we're going to come <laughs> okay. back and we're going to we're going to look again um, at the source of these dualities that existed in your beloved father there is a loving pay on to him in this book you don't stint on it and it forces the reader to have these coexisting sides inside our heads as well understanding really Hmm, that must have been a lot for Gretchen Charrington to be dealing with. I don't want anyone to go away because when we come back, we are going to hear about some of the bombshells that came out of your perusing the archives in Dartmouth of your famous father and ultimately finding your voice. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In.
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Gretchen Charrington. If you haven't read it, her new memoir, Poetic License, is just an incredible journey. It's illuminated by wonderful stories, loving stories, and also an examination of the dark side of a famous father, a patrician mother, and people who cared deeply about you, Gretchen, but who were unable through their own limitations to always be there. I think the fact that you are invested, as we were talking during the break, with this idea of trust and how central that becomes once your trust has been violated, it hasn't anything to do with having answers. It, it does it. it it's, it's just when you were present, for example, to your corporate clients or even to us as a writer you're investigating. We're investigating with you. We are going along in your journey and it unfolds incrementally and sequentially in a way that feels very real. I, I think the fact that you don't um, have this preponderance of ideas of, you know, here's the answer to this. I'm a seeker is more what I, I took away from, <laughs> from, from your book. Yeah. Um, that, that feels totally true. Yeah, yeah that, that feels yeah. like you. Um, and we never really get yeah. there, do we, before the, the curtain drops <laughs> and it's time, time to go on. But um, I, I, do, I do think that um, one of the things that is true of this book, I maintain always, is that when we drop into ourselves, it seems maybe a selfish, self-absorbed act. But no, actually, you end up having more universal truths that way. Um, and you've shared them. You've shared them beautifully in this book. I, I oh, wondered about. Oh, it's 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 really such a great pleasure to read it. Um, I I wondered about. Um, you know, you're in that now. You're in the archives. There were times when you left those sessions, um, needing to have a glass of wine with a dear friend, and totally understandable <laughs> when you were absorbing right. some of the news that you found there, um, including a long-standing affair that I think you might have even suspected, mm-hmm. but that occurred for your father and another woman who also was held within the orbit of the family, interestingly, um, mm-hmm. so that your your mother kind of 
put herself into an endurance test. And, you know, in the end, there's no medals for these things. Um, it's, yeah, um, right. it, it, it was a very, it had an echo there. But the other, the, the real bombshell that I, I experienced when you were in these archives is this incredible um, relationship that your father had with his own mother towards mm-hmm. the end of, of her life. Um, would you tease that out for us? Especially, do you feel that there's any antecedents there? It had very edible feelings to me, um, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. boundaryless feelings to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, did mm-hmm. that crawl across you when you were reading it, reading about it? Yeah, I, I I was stunned myself. I I knew all about my father's. Well, I knew ninety percent about my father's relationship with his mother because he talked about it quite frequently. He was um, he he adored her. Um, she was his poetic muse in many ways. I think other critics have said that. You know, people who know his poetry much better than I do um, have have certainly said that he was himself put in a really hard position at the age of 18 when his mother was dying of cancer and his father was won't go into the long story cuz that's my next book but but oh. his father his father was preoccupied with what was going on in the company that he worked for and unable to really tend to his dying wife the way he might have and um and although they you know, had been able to afford help and nurses and stuff. Um, the finances were ruined in 1921, and at the same time, this mother was dying of cancer. And my father was held back from the University of Minnesota for a year to to be with his mother, to take care of the home, to be the man of the house, if you will. I mean, it wasn't quite said that way, but that's the way I interpreted it. He did all the you know, he did the wood chopping and he fixed the windows and he, he brought her meals and he, he picked her up and moved her places. And, and over time, he became more and more intimate with her in a way that made me pretty uncomfortable when I read it. Now, I've heard people like Danny Shapiro, for instance, say that we have to be careful about judging the behavior of a person in a generation or two before that wouldn't necessarily behave in the same way that we do behave now. And I, I get that criticism um, or that, you know, that carefulness to, to attend to. At the same time, I did have his journal. My father had written a journal during about a six-month period of time of this care for his mom. And I did have my psychiatrist read it. And, um, you know, she said even in the 1920s and even for a loving son, this seems a little more close than what would be sort of quote-unquote normal. And, of course, my brother's, my father's older brother did not do the same. He, he was off at college and allowed to stay there and was a very different sort of person. Um, but, yes, it was kind of a bombshell to me, too, to actually find this journal. I didn't know that the journal existed. Um, I'd heard all about, you know, my grandmother Lena and her illness and his, him caring for her. Um, but not, I didn't know that there was a journal that he had kept and the journal is quite remarkable. And, um, you know, I trace a piece of it, just the sort of 
it, for me, what it did was not to say that there was an edible complex there. I, I can't, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a professional to do that. Number one, but number two, um, what it did for me was to suggest to me that there were significant boundaries crossed when my dad was 18, which was just about the time that he crossed them with me at 17. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly, it was his mother and him and me. It was his daughter and him. And, um, And there was something there that, in a sense, was helpful to me to understand why my father could have crossed that boundary with me um, mm-hmm. and not to excuse it in any way and not to suggest that, um, you know, that, that, well, not to excuse it in any way. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe that as a very sensitive young man, he was a poet at the age of 14. Everybody knew that. He was very literary and poetic, and his, his mother was a great champion of his, of his poetry and his um, young talent. And so he was a sensitive boy, you know, and he was put in a very difficult position to take care of her. Well, she's also being given a lot of morphine, and who knows how really with it she is. Um, I don't mean to laugh at that, but, you know, Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell how really conscious she is of what's going on. It's Slipping in and out of reality. Exactly. And whether she's confusing him with her husband or not, or who knows. But I I could empathize with him. And one of the reasons I could empathize with him was that he essentially put me in the same position, taking care of my mom. Mm. And he he didn't sit me down and say, Gretch, I adored my mother. I was put in this really hard position of taking care of her while she died. And here are some things I learned from it. And here's what I want you to know, because I know there will be times you'll be caring for your mom. And it's both an important thing to do for someone, to take care of someone who's sick, and it also is hard. And so here, you know, he didn't do any of that. (laughs) That that would have created a completely different trajectory for my life, probably. Um, Mm -hmm. He didn't do that. So so I could empathize with him because I'd been in that similar kind of position, um, although boundaried from my mom. Mm -hmm. And, and, so it was it was a bombshell to me too to find the journal and it was um it was it was kind of broke open you know if i had any leftover feeling of of oh my god you know i'm i'm wrong about what happened to me or or i don't don't trust my own sense of self um that certainly was an important Step to take across that across that you know that barrier um, and to sit with that and to sort of figure out what it meant to me was a big part of the journey of recovery. Really, I agree. It's it's seminal. Um, your father told you to write um, to tell it all. Um, you went to him and said, "I'm I'm you know I'm going to write this. I'm going to write my story." And he said to to let it all out. Um, and I thought that was significant, although not uncharacteristic of writers. They view every uh-huh. tragedy as material. Um, that's yeah. it's, and that's another also Danny Shapiro observation. Um, but I, yeah, I, I right. yeah, and 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 you did, um, you did it, Gretchen. And I think the thing is that I was fascinated. Um, 
two transcendent moments, but the one that I really focus on in the few minutes that we have left talking together is that you were at your father's deathbed. Something inside of you stirred. And in that moment, yeah. you, you spoke to him. Young talks about that. I had to look this up. It was so compelling. Um, it, you know, it's almost like this matrix that exists between us as persons that connected you to your father, who was also losing consciousness. And, and you basically forgave him. You, uh-huh. you allowed him to let go of his life. And in those moments, fascinatingly, you told him that this could be his last breath. And within Uh those moments, it was. What do you make of that? Fortunately, we have exactly three minutes to, I'm so sorry, it's a big question, but (laughs) do you you view it as something kind of transcendent? Well, it was for me. I have no idea what it was for him. Um, I... I know that forgiveness is more about us than them, and I, I know in retrospect that forgiving him was much more for me than it was for him. But it was for him at the time, and I, I was blessed, I, my, my daughter told me this, to be in his presence at that final moment, to have that last moment with him. And um, I took it for what it was worth I, with no planning. Again, it was totally intuitive or instinctive on my part. I just felt like I wanted to forgive him. I also wanted to tell him it was not okay what he did. So mm-hmm. I did that first. Um, and I guess that speaks to the truth that we were talking about, you know, that, that yes, I forgive you, and it was not okay what you did. You were my father. I was 17. Right. Um, but it's okay to let go now. And Gretchen, something has Gretchen. been holding. Yep. Yes. Okay. So I'm. I'm so sorry. We we've. We've got to run. Uh, We've got to run. I'm glad that you've shared this and all of it in your beautiful, powerful memoir, Poetic License. You can find Gretchen Charrington on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you, Gretchen. Your candor, your honesty feels very brave, and it helps us to speak truth to power. Thank you to our engineers, Matt and Aaron, and thanks most of all to our listeners. Stay safe, everyone, and speak up. We'll see you again next week on Dropping In. Thanks so much, Gretchen. Take care, Diane. Thank you. Thank you so much for Dropping In. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 